And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. I am very excited about doing this podcast. Uh, I've been, I've worked harder on this podcast, uh, getting prepared than I think I have uh, uh, since the first time I did the ultimate buy and hold strategy. Uh, I. Uh, I've focused on on helping investors make good decisions. Uh, I have taken what I consider to be the best information from the academic community, and I've tried to package it in a way that uh, it, it it encourages you to go the right path when you reach that fork in the road, whatever it might be. We've done that with 101 investment decisions guaranteed to change your financial future. Some of those decisions may lead to a $1,000 difference. Some of those may lead to a million-dollar difference over your lifetime. And certainly the work that we've done uh, in the ult- with the ultimate buy and hold strategy, trying to get people to to focus on what equity asset classes should you have in your portfolio, and how much of each of those equity asset classes should you have? Those are huge questions in terms of future returns. And then, because it isn't just about how much you make, it's about how much risk you take. We've worked endless hours to to uh, not only do podcasts on fine-tuning your asset allocation, uh, uh, a piece that we do every year updated uh, to whatever the latest uh, re- returns have been, and we're working on that. You'll, you'll have that in the next few weeks, uh, along with the ultimate buy and hold updated. But the fine-tuning your asset allocation is simply to help people decide how much fixed income should I have along with the equities to build a portfolio that when the bad times come, I am investing within my risk tolerance? Uh, and also, uh, how much how much risk should I be taking to get the return that I need? So sometimes we have to decide to take less risk because that's our risk tolerance, but we need a higher return, so instead... Maybe we work longer. Maybe we save more to try to get to our goal rather than taking risk that's uncomfortable. The fine-tuning your asset allocation work is, is, is built to try to help in that decision. And certainly we know that one of the biggest decisions that we're going to make is how we take money out of our investments in retirement. Somehow we have to figure out how much money we need to retire so that we can do it and feel safe about doing it. But then how do we take the money out? Do we take it out on a fixed basis plus inflation? Do we take it out on a variable basis so that each year we take a percentage of whatever we have in the portfolio at the first of the year to to, to get us through the year. These are huge decisions, whether we do fixed or variable. They're huge decisions, whether we take 3 4 5 or 6% out. And the information that we provide is hopefully helping people decide what is in their best interest. But there are areas that are very difficult uh, to, to help people make good decisions. We all know that, that equities are likely to make more money than bonds. We know that massive diversification is better than having all of our money in one company. Yes, we know that people who are willing to take the risk of putting all their money in, in, in one company could end up with a lot more money than we have. But we also know with massive diversification, we're not likely to end up with nothing. We know low expenses are important. We know that no-load funds leave more money for our family, that low expenses lead to higher rates of return. Low turnover tend to lead to higher rates of return over the long term. And of course we know that tax efficiency is a big deal. And that if we can figure out a way to invest where we never have to pay any taxes on the money that we make, that that 
makes it possible to retire with less money. We know that dollar cost averaging is a way that forces us to buy more when markets are low and and, and fewer shares when markets are high. So there there are a lot of things that we that we know if we can you know make it simple and show you the evidence you are likely to agree with us and hopefully the whole idea is for you to do better this is not about us doing better it's about you doing better but there's this one area that i think is very difficult and when we 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 talked about what title to put on this presentation and then the title to, to put on the article and by the way even if we suggest this title to market watch they normally change it and put something else on it because they feel it will it will get more opens because that's their first job is to encourage people to open the articles that all of us that work for market watch have written but our title our title is The Real Secret to Long-Term Investment Success. I hate it when I see a title that says, you know, the, the secrets to successful investing. And then you read low expenses, um, wide diversification. None of them are secrets. So have we pushed the envelope here is what I'm about to talk uh, about uh, a, a secret? Well, m- maybe not. But, you know, I think this topic, uh, th- this, um, th- this, this approach to, to being a better investor is not well understood. So is it a secret? No, probably not a secret. But here's what I do believe. I do believe that the most difficult thing for investors is simply to start investing maybe when they're in their early 20s with a strategy that is that is the best that we know and to maintain that strategy for the rest of our life. I, I mean, that would be a big deal because one of the one of the reasons so many people so many investors don't do well is because for some reason something comes along and forces them encourages them motivates them leads them to quitting what they were doing and maybe not doing anything Maybe not investing for years, and then something forces them to start again. They don't maintain the discipline for a lifetime. John Bogle talks about uh, a person who put money into his S&P 500 fund in 1976, and when he wrote his one of his books in 2000-something, he talked about how this person just left it there and how much it had grown to be worth. Well, that's what successful investing is about, is finding the right path and staying on it. The problem is, for a lot of investors, they start on a path and they may leave that money doing what it's doing, but they start another path and then another path and then they're looking for another way to build financial success. And what I would love to find, particularly for the millions of young people or middle-aged people who are someday going to retire and want to retire without worrying about whether they got the right strategy or not. But, but, But having had a strategy for 30, 40, maybe 50 years before they retire, But how do you get people to do that? What do you show them? Now, it's one thing to show them, as we often do, how wonderful small cap value is. But then small cap value goes out of favor. And people say, well, there's another one of those sales pitches or another one of those great ideas gone astray. 
Well, I'd like to figure out what could I show you? What could I say that would encourage you to do something the same way over and over and over for the rest of your life and have, in fact, built that that financial freedom, security, whatever it is that's important to you, the reason for giving up the fun of spending that money today and delaying your gratification until some future date. What a disaster if you do that and then you haven't done the right thing. And something really bad happens because you haven't done the right thing. And my sense is that the reason people stop doing what they might have thought was the right thing is they had unrealistic expectations. They believed a sales pitch that promised things that just didn't happen. Uh, And so they had to try to find a course that they could trust again. How How can I or any other investment advisor or educator, how can we help put you on a path that you can stay for the long term? So here goes my best approach, I think, that I have found yet. And it's not about promising uh, uh, magical returns. It's not about getting rich. It is about helping you believe that there is a way to invest that you can create reasonable expectations. Remember those many times that I have told you that if you follow my advice, I guarantee you will lose money at some point along the way? Well, I'll also guarantee there'll be long periods that whatever you do doesn't work very well. And I want to convince you that that's okay. So I also want to convince you to download the three tables. There's a link in the description of the podcast where you can download three tables. I hope you'll print them out in color, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and that will make it easier to, to follow what I'm about to share with you. So let's talk about the real secret to long-term investment success. And I want to talk about Table 1. In the past, I have shown you the the Callan tables, the periodic table, that shows in full color the returns of, I think, about 20 different asset classes year by year, over a a 20-year period. Uh, They haven't come out with their new one. I I always look forward to seeing the new one. But it is undoubtedly going to make it very clear that it's very difficult to pick the asset class that is going to do well the next year. And and as I look at it, and I love that, that, that table, uh, and this table is very similar. Table one entitled Annualized Asset Class Returns by Decade. Not by the year, but by the decade from 1930 to 2019. Nine separate decades of investing returns, whether you're investing in stocks or bonds. And to, and to do it in a way that it makes it easy to compare one decade to the next. Now, I should, I should mention that all these numbers you see on this page, every one of them, are purely hypothetical in terms of what you can expect for the future. In some cases, they, they, they represent real returns. In some cases, they represent returns that the academics have Uh, been able to put together based on looking at these major asset classes over very long periods of time. Or or, or actually, they look at these uh, stocks in these asset classes uh, one month at a time, going back to 1926. 
So the reason I say it's all hypothetical, partly because some of it is simply by looking at old data, well, like the S&P 500. There was no S&P 500 until 1957, and yet all of us have seen the S&P 500 returns going back to the 20s. I would suspect that most of you have. And prior to 1957, whatever you're seeing is purely hypothetical. It's the best hypothetical they can they can build for you. They're not trying to overstate the returns of the S&P 500. But my, my point is this, regardless of whether the returns actually happened uh, as a, an index or they are replicated, uh, building uh, these returns after they happened, you can't use them to know what's going to happen in the future. It might be similar, but they aren't going to follow the same patterns. They aren't going to look like what I'm about to share with you here. And what I want to look at in Table 1 is the far right-hand column to start with. Because I want to talk here about how investing really works from what we know about the past. And I want to go over to the far right column. It's headed 1930 through 2019. And I want to go to the bottom of that column. There is, I'll call it an orange square that says one month T-bill. What that says is for that 90-year period, the compound rate of return for the one-month T-bill was 3.3%. Now think about what a one-month T-bill does. It matures every 30 days. It is guaranteed by the U.S. government. And so it is the lowest risk of all. It, it, it's even lower risk than a money market fund. Because a money market fund can be worth less at the end of the month than when it started, but not the U.S. government T-bill. So there is, there is some volatility, as you'll see in a minute, but the risk is as close to zero as we can get as an investor. And I want you to note something right below the colorful square that represents the one-month T-bill, and notice the number 3.1, that was the inflation rate from 1930 through 2019. Inflation compounded at 3.1. The return on one-month T-bills compounded at 3.3. In other words, you did little better than breaking even. And that doesn't mean you couldn't be a successful investor in, in terms of accumulating enough money to retire on. But if you depend on a no-risk investment, you are going to have to probably work more years, and you're going to have to save a greater percentage of your income to do it. But there are people that that's what they do. They put their money someplace where there's absolutely no risk. Now, the next step up, the green box, is long-term government bonds. This has got about a 25-year maturity to it, and that compound rate of return is 5.7. Now, that's a big difference, and I'll show you that in a few minutes, but, but, but that is a bigger premium almost 2.5% better compound rate of return. And that's a big deal, as you'll see. And why is the long-term government bond risky? Because, yes, the government may say, I promise to, 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 to pay you back the, the $1,000 you put into this bond in, in 20 or 30 years. But in the meantime, the price can go up and down because of the direction of interest rates. And it could be that at the point you have to liquidate that bond is not when they finally give you your money back, plus the interest, 
but you need it now at a point that maybe interest rates have gone up and the value of the bond has gone down. So there's more volatility in the long-term government bond than the T-bill. That's where the premium comes from. They pay more because there's greater risk. So even in bonds, there's a difference between the amount of risk you can take and the amount of money you're likely to make. And you'll see in a few minutes that there are periods that that the one-month T-bill actually makes more money than the long-term bond. So it doesn't always work the way we would like, but that's the way over the long term it should come out. More risk, more return, going up one more square to the S&P 500. Instead of 5.7 for the long-term government bond, the return leaps up to 9.8. Big difference. Much earlier retirement. Or when you retire, taking out a lot more money if you chose the S&P 500 over the long-term government bond. And by the way, those S&P 500 companies, these are 500 of uh, what we'll call the highest quality companies in the U.S., Now, if you take more risk than the S&P 500, you can get a higher return historically with more risk. And the reason that large cap value is more risky than the S&P 500 is the S&P 500 is made up of growth companies and value companies, the growth companies being the companies that people perceive to be the best, that have a really great future. Maybe they're very large. Maybe they're very financially secure. Maybe they're in an industry that is building uh, at at a fast pace versus other companies that might be Good companies, they're okay, but they're not as strong. They're not as hopeful as the the investors aren't about the future. And so they become less risky under certain conditions. I'll show you those conditions in a few minutes. But notice what happens to the return. You take more risk, and you get a better return in the long run, 11.1%. So now you have added... Uh, more than a, a full percent. And you can may remember from my earlier podcast talking about the, the huge impact a half of 1% can make on us as an investor. Well, here's more than a 1% advantage over the long term. Now I want to jump over the next, the, the pink box, and I want to go right up to the yellow. Small cap blend. Now, The S&P 500 is large cap blend growth and value. Small cap blend is a combination of growth and value, but small companies, public companies, instead of being a $50 to $100 billion company, they're likely to be more like $2 or $3 billion company. They're legitimate, but they're... Not as big. They may be not as well financed. Uh, They may be relatively young and on their way up. But the compound rate of return, looking at all of the small cap blend stocks from 1930 through 2019, including the ones that didn't make it, by the way, that's important, was 12.2%. So now we go from 9.8 with the large cap blend, the S&P 500, to 12.2. That's a lot of extra return. But that extra premium comes from extra risk. And then when you get to the top of the column, the equity asset class that we can track back to 1930, That equity asset class, small cap value, compounded at 13.7%. And by the way, by going all the way back to 1930, you have to live through the terrible depression. And we'll see that in just a sec. But that one column creates a belief system for me 
that when somebody says to me, how do you think the market's going to do over the next year or the next 10 years? Oh, I don't have any problem knowing what I think the market's going to do. I think the stocks will be bonds. I think that long-term bonds will make more than short-term bonds, and I think that small-cap value will be the best of these major four equity asset classes, and small-cap blend will be next, large-cap value will be third, and the S&P 500 will be fourth, because we have so much evidence that that's the way it is. Now, then I want to, before I leave this column, I want to go back to that pink, that pink square, rectangle. Uh, It's the four fund combo, 25% each in the S&P 500, large cap value, small cap blend, and small cap value. And why wouldn't it come third? Because half of it's in small cap that produce the best returns, and the other half is in large cap that produce lower returns at less risk. So I would expect the four-fund combo to be right in the middle, and by golly, it was 11.9%. And because so many investors own the S&P 500 as their main investment, or virtually the same thing is the total market index. If you look at the compound rate of return going back 90 years, I don't even have to have a square for the total market index because it's virtually the same as the S&P 500. And I don't mean every year, but over time. There is no premium for investing in the total market index over the S&P 500. And I've talked a lot about that on other podcasts. So here's what I expect. Here's the way it's supposed to be. It's like low expenses are supposed to give you better returns than high. Tax efficient, better than tax inefficient. Broad diversification, better than speculation in one company. There's a whole bunch of things that we believe strongly. We don't believe in putting money for retirement into lottery tickets, and yet somebody will win. And I don't feel foolish. I feel happy for them. But I don't feel foolish in my belief they shouldn't have purchased the ticket in the first place. And here's the problem with this column. This is not the way it really works one day at a time, one week, one quarter, one year. In fact, it turns out that even though academics believe in this relationship and getting the premium for the risk, that we can even go out 10 years and see that it doesn't hold up. And that's what this table is meant to do. Because you see, if, if, if we educators or money managers could convince you that over the long run, this is what's going to happen in terms of that premium for risk for having chosen certain investments, maybe you would, in fact, be able to stay the course. Now, I will try to make the case for you that probably for most people, the strategy here that is going to be the the easiest one to use would be the four-fund combo. And you'll see why in a few minutes, or why I believe that, by the way. But even though it is the third most productive in terms of returns, it's where I think people will be able to invest and stay the course. Now, let's see if this information on this table creates a better perspective of what investing is really like. Because I want to look briefly at each one of these decades, and I want to see the things that are 
uh, out of sync, that don't look like the way it was supposed to be. And by the way, we'll always be able to explain at the end of a period of time why things happened the way they did. We just don't know about it beforehand. But you'll notice in the 1930s that the best and most profitable strategy was all in long-term government bonds. And then for some reason, I don't really know, small cap blend was able to break even and make a little money. Then comes one-month T-bills. So two out of three of the top three are fixed income guaranteed instruments. And then comes the S&P 500 with a loss of one-tenth of one percent. And then the four-fund combo. And look at the bottom of, this, of, of the column, small-cap value and large-cap value. Now, I'm a little dumbfounded. Why would large-cap value lose more than small-cap value? I suspect because companies were way overvalued, big companies were, during that period of time, that in that adjustment downward, taking the premium out, that the large companies may have taken a bigger hit than the small companies. Now, it's not a huge difference, but but it is a difference. And these are compounded numbers. But notice, instead of small cap value being at the top of the heap and large cap value being better than the S&P 500, not here. And one of the reasons likely is, is because value companies were already out of favor before the Depression came along. And if you had a problem before the Depression, you probably had a bigger problem in the Depression. So value companies are probably at greatest risk when the, uh, uh, when the economy is the softest. But also notice something in this column at the bottom, the very bottom, the annual inflation during that, the, uh, that particular decade was actually not inflation, but deflation. So if we look at the S&P 500, which lost one-tenth of one percent, inflation adjusted, it actually made money. That's why you can legitimately say that the S&P 500 in the 30s did better than the S&P 500 in the 2000 through 2009 period when it lost nine-tenths of one percent and inflation was two and a half percent. Not deflation, but inflation, which means you actually, in terms of buying power, were behind at the end of that decade what you would have been behind in the Depression and that particular decade. So there's our first example, and it doesn't look anything like the final column that tells you the way it's supposed to be. Then in the 40s, notice that things look right. Hey, this is the way it's supposed to be. Small cap value number one at 19.9, small cap blend at 14.9, the four fund combo at 14.3, large cap value at 12.7, the S&P 500 at 9.2, about a 10% plus difference between the S&P 500 and small cap value. And long-term bonds did better than short-term T-bills. So there's a case where it worked. But the next year, the next decade, it didn't. During the next decade, you can see what happened. Small cap value, this is the 50s, top of the pack. The four fund combo was second place. And the reason it was easy to be in second place is because everybody scored from small cap blend at 19.2 to small cap value at 19.6 at decade where there was virtually no difference in the return in all four of these major asset classes as well as the four fund combo.
What a decade that was, huh? Anybody almost could say, I had a great decade. Big, small, value, growth. Virtually the same return for that 10-year period. Is that normal? Well, it certainly doesn't look like the spread from 1930 through 2019, where the difference between the small cap value and the S&P 500 was about 4%. And then we go to the 60s. Starts out looking right. Well, wait a minute. It does look right for, for the equities, but the fixed income is backwards. The T-bills did better than the long-term government bonds. And the spread between the S&P 500 and small cap value was 7.8 for the large cap blend, this S&P 500, and 14.3 for the small cap value. And then the 70s. A great decade for value. How do I know that? Because small cap value and large cap value are at the top of the column. That means that growth underperformed value. That's what that means. And by a fairly sizable amount, because the S&P 500, remember, that's a blend of growth and value and small cap blend, 5.9 for the S&P, 9.2 for small cap blend versus large cap value and small cap value at 12.1 and 14.2. That was a barn burner for value. Better in small cap. So to that extent, it lived up to our expectations. Small cap did better than large. That's small cap value. So then the 80s come along. And again, for this another decade, we get the advantage to, uh, to large cap value. And then small cap value. Value, again, was, was, was paid a premium over growth. Because we can see, and by the way, notice the S&P beat small cap blend. So that means not only was value favored, but large was favored over small. And the bonds were right. Long-term government bond, 12.6%. T-bills, 8.9%. By the way, the range from low to high on the equities, small cap blend at 16.9% and, and, and large cap value at 206 well, those are great returns and, and, and not a huge spread. But the point is, it wasn't as what one would have called it at the beginning of the decade. Because remember, at the beginning of every decade, we are believing what we see in the 1930 through 2019 results. And then the 90s came along. And do you get the feeling the first thing you're going to see here is the S&P 500? Uh-huh. That is growth and value and big. So large cap value and the S&P 500 were at the top of the, uh, of the column in terms of individual asset classes. And the small were at the bottom. The range was not was not great between the bottom and the top. 15.8 for small cap blend, 18.2 for the S&P 500. And then we have the period from 2000 through 2009, the lost decade. Well, it wasn't a lost decade for the small cap value. It had the best performance, followed by small cap blend. Hey, it's looking like we're on the right track here until then. The next one we find is long-term government bonds. Are you kidding me? Long-term government bonds beat large cap value? Yes, by a by a, 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 a lot. So large did poorly, and growth really sucked. 
And you can see that if you look at the S&P 500 at the very bottom of that column, a loss of almost 1% a year for 10 years. Compared to the small cap value with a gain of 125 but you drop down quite a ways down to a small cap blend 7.9, which means there's quite an advantage of value over, over growth. And we can see it down below, too. Large cap value made 4.1. Well, large wasn't all that great, but the value kept it in the game. And then we have the last decade. We just finished. I couldn't wait to finish that decade so we could do this study. But what did I guess at the beginning of that decade? I put it in writing. That small would beat large. Eh. That value would beat growth. Eh. Completely off. Completely backwards. S&P 500, 13.6, down to small cap value, the worst of the four equities, at 11%. Here's my hope. And, I'm, and, 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 and I, feel, I feel hopeful. I, I feel like investors will get it. That there is a premium for equities over fixed income, there is likely a premium for small over large. There's likely a premium for value over growth. And so I would expect the future to, um, to look like that. Maybe it'll take two decades to get there. Maybe... It'll take nine decades to get there. Maybe it will take a whole bunch of different markets. Can you imagine what these things look like one day at a time or one month at a time or one year at a time? Well, you can see one year at a time by looking at the 20 years of the Callan table that show a whole bunch of different equity asset classes and fixed income one year at a time. And they're all over the place. And sometimes just like here on this table, table one, if you look at the forties, the fifties, the sixties and the seventies, decade after decade, small cap value is winning big and then you don't have it happen again until 2000 through 2009. Now, we'll see in a few minutes. Maybe after, now if you looked at all of these colors and asset classes bouncing around the place here, maybe you'll see why the four fund combo gives me a sense of comfort that some of the others do not. Let's go on to table two for just a few minutes. Won't take long. Table two has taken those same returns decade by decade and put them to work with $100. Now, it doesn't look, it doesn't look uh, impressive when you see the returns, I suspect, to a lot of people, particularly first-time investors. To look at a decade, let's just look, for example, at the period um, 2010 through 2019, $100 in the S&P grew to be worth $357. The four-fund combo grew to be worth 317 Large-cap value, 311 Small-cap blend, 311 Small cap value, 284 and uh, the government bond, long term, $207, and the T-bills, 105 So you could look at that, the difference between 105 and 357 the bottom and the top here, 
may not knock your socks off. And we could look at other periods. We, we could look at a, a, a period like uh, the 30s, where at the top you've got government bonds making $161, and at the bottom you've got large cap value. The $100 turns into $61. So I don't know that any of these individual boxes will uh, knock your socks off. But if you look at the final boxes to the far right, and somebody might say, yeah, that's 90 years, Paul, and uh, how long do you expect to be around? And my answer would be, well, if I can make another 15 years, I, I'll, I'll be happy. But who's going to live 90 years? Well, I'll tell you who's going to live 90 years. My very young grandchildren are going to live probably 90 years. And to the extent that we've put away some money for each of these grandchildren, they're supposed to last for the rest of their life. In fact, under contract, it has it can't be paid out, uh, and 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 uh, except at a rate of a five, four, or five percent a year, starting at age sixty-five. So, th- their investments will be around if they live to be ninety. The investments will be around ninety years. But I am impressed at this: that the small cap value, the hundred dollars, a hundred dollars. Uh, compounding at, uh, let's see, i got to go back to the other table here, 13.7% grows to over $10 million. If I go right down to the S&P 500, uh, it compounded at uh, 9.8. That would turn into 458000 458000 Now, I will tell you this. I can't tell you, uh, I know that Small cap value probably won't compound at 13.7, and the S&P 500 probably won't compound at 9.8. But if I invested money in small cap value and it didn't live up to the expectations, and it turned out that instead of $10 million, it turned into $2.5 million, as the four-fund combo did, I'd be okay with it. Because probably if that happened to the small cap value, the S&P 500 probably got less than the $458,000. But this is the impact of the long term. This is the magic that supposedly was noted by Albert Einstein that compound interest is the uh, eighth wonder of the world. Well, by the way, most people or a lot of people don't believe he ever said that. But you can see here... It, 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 it may not be the eighth wonder of the world, but to the person who ends up with all this money, it feels like it. But I would be particularly interested in the very young people, young investors in their 20s, even in their 30s. That's still young. I do want you to see at the bottom of the 1930 through 2019 what that number is for T-bills. You have an asset, you young people, that we can only dream of. It's called youth and time. And the time gives you the ability to let that compounding impact happen over a period long enough that it can be life-changing. But think of the difference if I put money aside for a grandchild and said you can't have it until you're 90, and I put all the money in T-bills. How would you feel about that? $1,872 at the bottom versus $10 million plus at the top. Or $2.5 million in the four-fund combo. That's a decision a lot of young people are making is to invest in what they perceive. Well, even the long-term government bond ended up with 14000 That's a far cry from the millions that you might have had with a combination of the S&P 500, the large-cap value, the small-cap blend, and the small-cap value. 
Oh, but there's more. I want you to look at table three for a few minutes with me. I think this table, uh, when when Daryl Balls, who put all this together for me using the uh, Dimensional Funds database, uh, when he sent this to me and he said, this ought to get somebody's attention. It just, I, I love it because you get rid of all of the other stuff going on and you just focus on two investments for a lifetime. And I don't mean that I'm encouraging you to put all your money in equities for a lifetime, but to the extent that you're going to devote your money to equities I'm thinking the four-fund combo, and and let me make this very clear. I do not have a four-fund combo. Uh, I have a 10-fund combo, but I'd be okay for people who want to make it simpler to have a four-fund combo. Would I think it's stupid to put all your money in small-cap value or put all your money in a combination of large-cap value and small-cap value? No. I don't think that's stupid. I don't think that's crazy. I don't think that's a speculation. I think you're taking more risk than you than you might have to to get where you're trying to go. But notice how those four fun combos end up not in the middle of the page, but leaning to the upside. Now, when you are an average of four combos, you are guaranteed, I would bet a million dollars that if you have four asset classes and the four of them act independently uh, and you have a four-fund combo, that as long as all four of those equity asset classes didn't end up with exactly the same return, that the four-fund combo will never be number one because it is designed to be less than number one, but notice how it's never the last one. In fact, the four-fund combo never ends up in the bottom two rows there. The S&P 500 does. The S&P 500 has three decades that it's in the third from the bottom. The four-fund combo has one. In the next one up, the S&P has two in the fourth row versus one for the four-fund combo. I think even though the four-fund combo has theoretically more risk inside of it, that the team that the team is going to do better than the big boss. The big boss is the S&P 500. But the team is going to do better overall than the big boss. By how much? Who knows? But notice, the S&P 500 was 9.8 over this 90 years, and large cap value was 11.9. Now, I I think there are some important things to know about these results. I've already told you one of them. They're hypothetical. The other one is there are no expenses taken out. There are no taxes taken out. Which means if you get put your money into very, very low cost, either ETFs or mutual funds, that... Uh, it wouldn't be, those expenses wouldn't knock the returns down very much. Could be one-tenth of one percent. What we don't know is what those equity asset classes will do in the future. So my hope, my hope is I could find a way to help you build a portfolio that you will stay the course, that you will live through a decade when your portfolio, well, by the way, if you go the four-fund portfolio, you know right up front you're never going to be number one. You know that. You're okay with that. Because 
That means it allows you to put some asset classes that are going to probably help you be in the upper half most of the time. And, uh, and, and, and that you have no idea whether you're going to look more like the 30s or more like the, the last decade we just went through. You don't know. And that you're willing to stay the course to whatever extent you're willing to hold equities in your portfolio. In what would be a massively diversified portfolio, you're probably, at a minimum, you're going to have 2,000 stocks in your portfolio. And you could do this. You could do this by simply going to Vanguard. Or you could do it at Fidelity. Or you could do it at Schwab. And you could do it at Vanguard and Fidelity with ETFs. You go to um, go to the list that 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 Chris Pedersen has put together, best in class ETFs. There we show you those four different asset classes along with six other equity asset classes. But to the extent that you decided to keep life simple and only use those four, they are they are there in that list of uh, of best in class ETFs. Now I'm asking for your help. And this time I'm not asking for money. I want you to tell me, please, respond. How meaningful is this information to you? Well, here's what I know. Most of you are already pretty savvy investors and have been around a long time doing this. And any help that I've been has been a minimal in changing what you're doing. So I am thrilled to have you with us. And I am realistic about how much impact I can have on you. But here's my question for you and then the rest of you. Does this combination, these three tables, do they in fact give you information that make you feel more secure? Or maybe it isn't a matter of making you feel more secure. Maybe it's a matter of you feeling that, yes, I think I could stay the course now that I understand what I might have to go through to get there. And yes, I do believe that if I do this long enough that I'll see the world through that final column with small value at the top and the S&P 500 at the bottom with the equity asset classes. Now, people like myself... We're doomed to randomness. We're doomed to randomness because there's a high probability for the 15 years or maybe 10 years that I live further that it won't look like the the far right column. But for those of you in your 20s or those of you investing money for a newborn child, there's a high probability that 40, 50, 60 years down the way, it's going to look like this. So here's what I'm hoping that you'll do. I'm not expecting you to go to a newborn child and share this table with them, but I am asking that you take that table to a young investor who doesn't know much about investing and walk them through it and see if they get it. I know they can understand the concept of lower expenses and higher tax efficiency. I teach high school kids that. They understand that. The idea of diversification, they understand that. They understand that stocks beat bonds. They do understand that. But this this discussion, this presentation, I'm not sure they do understand. I'm not sure many investors understand or what happens is that the emotions of being out of sync is kind of foreign so foreign to them even though they might if somebody said to them not having seen these tables said to them hey be patient it all works out in the end 
oh, yeah, sure, I can believe that. I've been losing money lately on what I've invested or I've underperformed. Like the fellow that wrote to me recently and said, young person, I assume, and said that our portfolio that we recommend has underperformed the S&P 500 by 5% this year, and why shouldn't he just put all of his money in the S&P 500? I am hoping that kid sees these tables. So I'm hoping that you're going to give me some feedback on this. I, I, I'm, I, I really would like to know if I'm on to something here, or better yet, tell me what you would say to somebody that would convince them that they should really stay the course, that there, there is an absolute, I can't say that, that there is a huge probability that you will, in fact, see that premium if you just hang in there. And I've got another favor to ask. And this one is even, in some ways, a bigger favor. We have been struggling with the decision with this upcoming book. And this upcoming book is going to cover the $12 million decisions, and it's going to cover the uh, two funds for life. Uh, it's a short book. Uh, it is it is built for mostly for first time investors. Uh, it uh, it will hopefully motivate people who don't understand investing to do the right thing from day one. But uh, we've decided rather than charging for the book, and the reason that it would make sense to charge for the book is because it could be a source of income uh, for the uh, uh, for our uh, foundation. But we are going to, we've decided, we are going to offer the book free on our website and uh, to offer the book, as we understand that we can now, there was a time when we couldn't, but to offer the book as a, Kindle version, free. Uh, I'm even contemplating uh, doing an audio, uh, or if I don't do it, maybe I'll get my friend Don McDonald. Uh, he's got a beautiful voice, uh, and have uh, Don uh, do uh, read the book. Again, it's not a long one, uh, and 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 make that, as I said, free, uh, in the hopes that we'll get it to a lot of people. Now, we can't offer a free print-on-demand. Uh, that we will charge for, and and the foundation will make a few bucks on each book there. But here's what I'm hoping you'll do between now and when the book comes out. And I can't say exactly when that'll be out. Probably could be two or three months. We're basically done, but we've got to figure out how to present it. Plus, I have a dream. My dream is to 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 do a pod, what would be the equivalent of a podcast uh, that would be dedicated to every chapter, so that for those who wanted to go the next level deep in understanding whatever um, each of those twelve million dollar decisions are, that uh, they could listen to me ramble on for half an hour. Uh, so that they could learn more if they if, if if that's their desire, but I would like you to start making a list of people that when it is out and it is free and you will be able to send a link to them uh, to the book uh, that you'll be uh, ready to roll. Now they they don't have to get it free at our site. Um, I, th- I think. There'll be some people who are reticent to go to our site to get it, but they would go to Amazon to get it. So uh, that's uh, that's what we're we're working on right now, and where I would like your help. And I also would like you um, to be willing, those of you who uh, do this sort of thing, uh, to go to Amazon when it comes out, and after and after you've read it. And it won't take you long, I promise, uh, to go there and uh, whether you're going to give it high marks or low, uh, make your honest comments about it. And uh, uh, that will be helpful because the more uh, reviews you get, 
the, the, the more people are likely to take note. So there you go. Uh, I loved doing this, uh, this podcast. I do hope it has the impact that I think that it might. It, it made me, by the way, rethink my feelings of comfort with what I'm doing as an investor and knowing that what's going to happen to me for the rest of my life is going to be pretty random in terms of our investments. But I don't want it to be random when it comes to giving you all good information. We'll try to make sure that that's absolutely uh, up to your expectations. Thanks for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.